Welcome back to the Overthinking Movies podcast. I'm your overthinking host, Brandon Hain, joined by overthinking co-host Alex Ulaki. And in the lead-up to The Flash, a movie that seems more determined to be a Batman movie than it is a Flash movie, uh, Alex and I decided to take a look back at the previous films where Michael Keaton portrayed Batman and just the older, early 90s, late 80s uh, Batman films. Because, boy... It's been quite some time since then, and what's been established about the character now in modern filmmaking and just the mythos of how you portray him now has changed a lot since these films that kind of established what an on-screen darker Batman is supposed to be like. So for this episode, we're going to take a look at Batman 1989 and Batman Returns. And then after this, in another episode, we'll be looking at Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, the uh, Joel Schumacher films. We figured it would make more sense to split up the Burton and the Schumacher films into their own episodes as they are very different feeling movies. Alex, what is your experience with Batman 1989? Batman 1989, I have seen a lot of times growing up. The rest I've seen once and that's about it. But 89, I, I've seen a multitude of times, and, you know, I, I always kind of liked it, but it's... And I acknowledge that it's one of the better films. I mean, it is a classic as far as, like, any of the Batman films we have, but nonetheless, it's never one that got me, like, particularly excited or engaged, um, though I've always acknowledged that... Or since watching its uh, sequel films, I've acknowledged that that is the best of the films, and I don't think that that opinion is going to be changing as we continue through the rest of these either. I had Batman 1989 on a VHS tape when I was a kid that I had found at a flea market, and I had never seen it before, and I watched it, and as a kid, I really enjoyed it for what it was. Watching it now has been just a fascinating experience, because I didn't think my opinion would change that much, but the truth is, is that... It's a strange whiplash to see now with how different we see Batman. I mean, to be fair, many of our modern Batman films are very hyper-realistic movies that are trying to portray what it would really be like to have a character like Batman in a realistic world. While the Tim Burton movie is primarily concerned with being a comic book adaptation, and it's very much a noir film than it is really a typical superhero movie. Though obviously there's plenty of Batman coming out of the shadows and beating up guys. It's also a very different take on Batman's characterization. So this movie has a really interesting and honestly a really cool structure where it's more about trying to figure out the mystery of who Batman is. Because of course, at this point in Batman's history in terms of filmmaking, the only movie people had had really was the 1960s film based off the you know cheesy but lovable and genuine 1960s adam west batman show which when you complain that this adaptation isn't hyper realistic i mean compared to that or their cartoons from like the the 70s and 80s i mean this would be the most grounded batman we've ever seen that's very true i guess i, th I think of that just in comparison to what we have now considering the kind of over-the-top gothic set design of the Burton movies, and let's just say some of the other interesting things that happen in these films that I wouldn't necessarily call realistic, but you're right. No. At the time, <laughs> this is definitely the most grounded Batman we had had. It's kind of funny, when you actually look up quotes from Tim Burton talking about the making of the movies when he was kind of offered to direct, Burton just straight up says, eh, I was never really a fan of comic books. When I was a kid, I could never 
figure out which panel to read in which order, so I just didn't like them. But Batman the Killing Joke... Come on, Tim! But, but Batman the Killing Joke, Alex, was the first comic book he ever read that he could read the panels in order, so that's why it was, he liked it a lot. And he's just... You know, (laughs) I think he might have just been more interested in that, because the panels ran in the same direction as they had been for the past, like, 50 years before then. I... Alex, I've never quite understood Tim Burton, but he basically says that he's always loved the the image of Batman and the Joker, and so he was inspired in a sense, but uh, I mean, the fact that he wasn't necessarily passionate about the source material on that level, he just, you know, liked one of the graphic novels, kind of to me, makes a lot of sense with the way that the characters are portrayed in this movie. Michael Keaton's Batman is very out there and different from what I'm usually expecting of the character. And I mean that because his motivations, his morality, like, on some level, sometimes he's, you know, the guy that just, like, knocks out the thugs and scares them so that they get out of his way. But other times in this film, he just kills... It feels like it's because it's a life-and-death situation, and he just, you know, kills because otherwise he would be killed. But it just feels odd with a character Well, otherwise, even, like, the end, he's, like, clearly intent on killing the Joker after some of the the story reveals itself. And this is drastically different to everything else we've seen, not only after this, but really before this, as far as established on-screen material. Comic book material, really, too. I mean, I guess Burton was... At one point, looking at, like, the very original aesthetic from the 40s, maybe, where, you know, you have Batman going around with a gun at a, an issue or two before they got rid of that. But, yeah, this whole thing, I mean, uh, when I was looking at, like, him killing people, it almost, and some of these other unestablished rules of Batman, so to speak, in cinema at that time, it was almost like going back through Night of the Living Dead, the classic zombie film that started it all, and being able to point out, like, okay, that breaks the rules of zombies, even though this sets it up for the rest of the future, so I'll I'll just accept that here. Right. This breaks the rule of Batman, but, I mean, this is kind of the one that got him into where he is today, so, okay, whatever, I'll roll with it I mean, this is also supposed to be a very early era Batman. Like, he doesn't even have the bat signal yet. He's just kind of running around beating up thugs. That is I mean, I don't really think the movie does a great job giving me an idea that Batman's really having an impact on the whole city. Well, that's the opening to the film. I mean, he literally, like, has to tell that criminal who he is in the classic of classic pieces of dialogue. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. (laughs) Yeah, because usually we're so used to uh, actors using just like a completely different voice when he's in the suit, but Keaton just kind of lowers his voice a bit, and that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting choice. Like, I, I mean, the, here's the thing, right? I do like Keaton's performance. I do think that when he's in, when he's Bruce Wayne, he has this kind of, he almost feels like he has like a social disorder. He's very like introverted. No, definitely. You can tell that this interpretation of him, although it's established that he's like been to Japan and here and around the world because he references that like he bought his night suit there as classic Batman lore goes. But you can tell that this Bruce Wayne has been extremely sheltered by Alfred for most of his life. He doesn't know he'll mess with people, but he doesn't really know, like, the right way to talk to women or the right way to... I mean, he doesn't seem to have any friends. He doesn't really seem to have anyone he's that close to. He just seems very sheltered, and it was a very different Bruce Wayne for me, too. Like, you get, like, the extremely brooding one in, say, the 
The Batman, which came out in 2022, or in Batman the Animated Series, which was inspired by this, when Bruce Wayne speaks, he always is almost doing a voice for him, too. Like, he changes his voice for Batman, but he also changes his voice for Bruce Wayne. Like, oh, yeah, and this is Wayne Enterprise's tower. <laughs> we're we're going to be very excited about this. Like, he's, like, Bruce Wayne is an act as well. But this one, my take on it is that he's not even putting on an act for Bruce Wayne. There are just times when, like, he's so uncharismatic that it just seems like he doesn't care at all about Bruce Wayne. He has no interest in being this person. He just is. Michael Keane's Bruce Wayne just kind of seems like a guy in comparison to so many other more kind of in-themselves tortured Batmans we've seen over so many years henceforth uh, throughout the the history of the series. Because, I mean, yes, I mean, he also is kind of, you know, recovering from the death of his parents. And part of the arc of the movie is about him discovering who killed his parents and wanting revenge against them. Like, because in this continuity of this movie, it's about not just the reporters, because, of course, our kind of focal point in the movie is uh, Vicky Vale and Alexander Knox searching into figuring out who Batman is. It's also about Batman figuring out who killed his parents, which in this movie's continuity turns out to be the Joker himself, uh, who is here, unlike other interpretations, where we don't know at all who the Joker is. He's just sort of this this personified guy of, like, chaos and destruction. The extreme Dark Knight interpretation in uh, 2008, where he gives his origin, like, three different times, through story and none of them like you know connect to each other whereas here we get like the most famous joker origin because again there are debates whether this character has a canon origin or not but oftentimes if he does it's this falling in a vat of acid thing right it was primarily based on the red hood origin that you get in Batman the Killing Joke. Here he's Jack Napier, who's this uh, gangster who's kind of working his way up the ranks, and he's like the the right-hand man of of a big crime boss named Grissom. And Carl Grissom, played by Jack Palance, sees Jack as a threat to his business, which is why he sets up Jack to be attacked by the police at the toxic waste plant. That scene itself is so strange, because... Batman shows up and he grabs Jack and then one of Jack's thugs is like, no, put him down. And Batman puts him down and then Batman just disappears, but disappears long enough for Jack to kill someone. (laughs) And then, and then shows up again right after that and then fights Jack. And then Jack falls into into the Axis chemicals and becomes the Joker. The thing is with this movie, Alex, is that it's, I guess the way I would describe it, and I I began to understand my feelings as I got more towards the climax, it's, it's a Tim Burton movie, and I've seen many of those over the years now, much more than I, I have since I saw this movie originally, you know, decades ago. And it has that same flaw that so many Burton films have where they're so concerned with creating memorable, iconic visuals that many times it kind of just throws out logic or scene pacing or things that you would think would make sense in favor of... Yeah, a lot of things that would make sense are thrown out. This is true. Look, the bat jet's over the moon. It looks like the bat signal. Okay, Batman, but... Don't you need to get down there because the Joker's murdering people? Like, it's just... I just... uh, Okay, so positives. The positives are the performances. Uh, Michael Keaton's Batman is a unique character, but I think he does a good performance. Obviously, 
obviously, though, the performance that steals the entire film is Jack Nicholson. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I respect Keaton's performance, but it's honestly not... Even as Batman, though he's more charismatic as Wayne, I don't find him to be very charismatic. And no, definitely what kept me going was uh, Jack Nicholson's performance and to some extent the the reporter Vicky Vale and then her friend. And then uh, just those Tim Burton visuals because, I mean, there's so much of that. And like you said, I mean, he does throw away a lot to get some of these shots, but I mean, these shots do stick out in my head. It's a movie that lives for some of these shots. Oh, yeah, I mean, Alex, this movie won the Academy Award that year for Best Art Direction, and there's not really a debate there. This movie perfectly created this. The vision of what many of us see as the comic book version of Gotham City, which is this, this gothic city that has all this history and all of these giant statues. Basically, it looks like a city that's existed for centuries and centuries that's been building on top of itself forever, and it looks beautiful. It looks like a set. It doesn't look like a real city very much at all, but it's beautiful in its way, which works well for capturing that comic book appearance. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But no, you you would say that you were pretty engaged by Keaton's performance. Again, nothing on Keaton. I also don't think he was getting strong direction to really be allowed to do that much either. No, I enjoyed Keaton. I especially enjoyed his Bruce Wayne, honestly, because I... I liked a lot of his mannerisms. He's very... A lot of his performance is his eyes. He's very direct, and you can tell he's a man where he's constantly thinking. That's true. All the time. I mean, and yeah, a you're lot right. Of, I mean, he has very few pieces of dialogue in either of the two movies that we're doing right now, actually. Yeah, and personally, Alex, I think that's the point. The understatedness, the right. uncharismaticness of his performance, I think that's kind of what they're going for, that he's this close... And But I get what you mean, too, that... It's also a much less uh, energetic performance than we're used from Christian Bale or, of course, uh, Robert Patterson in The Batman. No, no, I'm not even saying that. Like, I like this interpretation. It's just not particularly... I, I, I like the concept of it. It just isn't particularly engaging to watch. Because it's not really the performance that I have a problem with. The performances are great. For me, Keaton's Batman, I just writing-wise... I just don't know what to think of that character a lot of the time, particularly his Batman. Like, he just seems like sometimes he's this moral figure that's trying to dispel the crime in the city, and sometimes he's just a guy that wants revenge. Like, you know, of course, the classic, you want to get nuts, let's get nuts scene, where he gives this big speech to the Joker, and then... So, that scene, Alex, what... What was Keaton going for? Like, what, it, or what is the writing in that scene going for? Why is he, is he just trying to stir up the Joker so that the Joker will shoot him and that way he can preserve his secret identity by escaping? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's why he puts that tray in there so because he's planning to get shot, so. Well, luckily, the Joker only shoots people in the stomach, so that worked out. Yeah, pretty much everybody does. I mean, you know, he has this intense suit of armor that, he keeps getting blasted in, but he's fine. But, you know, it seems like if he was going to make this suit of armor, instead of leaving, like, that whole chunk of his face at for nobody to shoot, even after they all realize he has armor, and it's different because it's not like in other interpretations where he's swinging from, like, the, the ceiling shafts for most of the film. I mean, usually he's standing, like, right in front of people, and then they exchange dialogue, and then they shoot him in the stomach, and then nothing happens. You know, if one of these people would just, like, shoot him in the face, he would die, but they don't seem to uh, make the connection there between skin 
die. As far, though, as you were talking about with, or actually what I brought up is I think after, you know, you mentioned that he liked the killing joke a lot, but then I think some of his inspiration did come from the look of the very early comics. I guess this whole movie does kind of beckon to, like, a very early Batman, the one who was carrying around a gun and at the same time isn't that good at what he does and doesn't even necessarily, who's learning who and what he is, because through a lot of this movie, he just gets, like, pummeled and, like, knocked around pretty severely. He doesn't seem all that coordinated yet. You know, he's still facing his own morality, but maybe that does kind of connect into, like, this quarter of his life through the four movies being related to those very first couple of comics where it was a very different character than we'd find yeah, later. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's such a different take than what I'm used to because I feel like Jack Nicholson's Joker is, like, exactly what I envision the Joker as. He's crazy, but he's also he's also direct. He has an exact idea of what he wants to do, and it's all about jokes. It's all about creating chaos through what he finds funny. But here, you know, there's a full-on origin. We know who Jack Napier is, that he was this crime boss that was always kind of belittled, and now he's getting revenge for the way that he was pushed over by Grissom and the people that he was working under. But we also get, like, a psychological profile, too, where it explains that in school he have interest in, like, the arts and chemicals and all sorts of things, which then adds up to... Which does make sense. Yeah, that really does actually make a lot of sense, therefore. Which then leads to a lot of moments in the film where the Joker is specifically using art as part of his modus operandi, whether it's that scene where he's, like, cutting up newspaper clippings. (laughs) Okay, so that scene, Alex, why do they pick out Veil? Is it because they're looking for photographers in particular? I don't know. When I watched the whole thing, I think... When I watched it last night and we got to him seeing Veil... And he went, oh, I went, ugh. It just felt really contrived, but I mean. I never understood why he picked her in particular. Because you think of superhero movies we had after this where the villains target that character because they know their connection to the hero. Right, the classic Green Goblin scenario, right? Instead, he just kind of picks Vale out because he's like, oh, she's pretty. I guess I'll go after her because his partner just so happens to show him that picture. By the way, Alex, that partner that works alongside the Joker through most of the movie, that's just like a personal friend of Jack Nicholson. Oh, that's cool. And Nicholson requested him to be on the movie as the Joker's right-hand man. (laughs) I like that. Which honestly, yeah, I kind of liked that the Joker just had like a guy that just is totally okay with everything the Joker does. I also love how they have that line come back where Grissom, you know, grabbed a hold of Jack Napier and was like, remember, you are my number one guy. And, you know, that's right before he then portrays Jack. And then when he becomes the Joker, he grabs a hold of his his right hand man and goes in a much more over the top delivery. You are my number one guy, which is interesting because he doesn't like portray his guy right after that, though he does near the end of the movie when he messes up. I, I don't know. I just, I don't. there's a lot about this movie where I'm just like not really sure what they were going for. But then like stuff like the Joker using cosmetics to go after the people of Gotham and make them have all these permanent smiles and all that. Like that's, that's such, that's the perfect Joker thing. Oh yeah. The, the news reports where the reporter laughs and then they're like, what's going on with her? And she dies. And then it, it cuts to Joker's commercial, which is, it, it's so, and it's such a great piece of comedy too, where he's just like, 
That guy was using brand X. <laughs> this is what you really want to be using is Joker products. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe this is how the character was always portrayed in the comics. But to me, this is like exactly what establishes what this character would be in the Batman animated series and, and other interpretations to come in the years after. So as far as Nicholson, how about like even his appearance? Do you have much to say on that? Like his specific Joker design throughout the movie? Honestly, it kind of reminds me of the Joker from the 60s show. Yeah. In terms of the specific way they designed him. Right. I, I can see that as, I mean, because they both pretty much just tried to plainly adapt the character right out of the comics and not really change up that much to him. Of course, you know, you get the checkered pants that Joker wears here. But then just the, the stuff they did to Nicholson's face after he falls into the acid where like what they do with his cheeks are just. And then, like, his mouth is, like, way back behind his face. That that still, like, holds up really well as just a unique, interesting, creepy kind of look that they have that just, I don't really know how exactly they did. It, it just pops out even more when he wears regular skin-colored makeup again on top of the white makeup after he's turned into a clown. Like, he's much freakier at that point, too, when he wears makeup to look like a normal person after that, which I like that they went back and forth doing that, too. Oh yeah, Joker's permanent smile is great. Yeah. And the the performance, man, like you said, they do a great job of not just making it clearly that character from the comic books, but also he just has so many different looks throughout the movie too because he's constantly switching back and forth between himself, but also painting a skin-colored makeup over his face to still look like Jack Napier when he's going out talking to mob bosses. And then he dresses up as a mime at one point oh, too. Oh, that mime scene where they slowly creep into the streets, and then he just shoots up all of the mob bosses in the middle of the streets. If you see, though, like, it's very well shot, but a lot of that kind of thing, though, I just, again, like, I can't buy, like, him shooting people left and right like he is when he's declaring war against all these other mob bosses, because it's kind of a similar thing that Heath Ledger would do in 2008, but that guy was much slinkier and craftier and always... He was able to run faster and slink away and hide easier. And this one, I just kept thinking, okay, you know, if you're going to declare a war on the entire mob and just show up in broad daylight right there, like, I feel like they would all shoot you. Both Joker and Batman are much clumsier than later interpretations would imply they are. I mean, I guess they are early versions of the characters in the sense that this is an early Batman, but this is, you know, they're basically doing the thing they do with the Green Goblin in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, where they just throw in, like, the most iconic villain ever into the movie, tie him directly to the character's origin, and then kill them off, even though they're, like, you know, the most greatest arch enemy the character's ever had. Yeah, but, I mean, in both in both this franchise and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films it seems like they would kill off pretty much most of the villains anyway at the end of every movie i suppose I so which is interesting because in the dark knight of course they had planned to bring the joker back they have him go to jail at the right. end, which is interesting considering the stuff that that character does throughout that movie but that's because batman has that morality he has that inner working system of how he believes criminals should be treated because the thing that made Batman the animated series so compelling for me at first it's about Batman just trying to get these villains in jail but as the series goes on it's more about Batman seeing that these are people and they need to be recuperated or else this is just going to be a never-ending cycle that goes on forever and he's not truly improving Gotham City right you get a lot of episodes that revolve around the villain more than Batman who would sometimes just show up at like the end of an episode or something like that and you might not see see any Bruce Wayne in it and to some extent 
I feel like some of that spirit was taken from these movies because we get a lot more time with Joker in here, I think, than we do with Batman. And in the next one, we certainly get a lot more time with Penguin and Catwoman than we do with Batman. But in this movie, where he's first starting out, I question Batman's motives. I question if he's doing the right thing. Like, I know that, obviously, there's corruption. I mean, from the beginning of the movie, we see corruption in the police department. And... Clearly, there's a lot of crime going on in the streets, but more than ever in any other interpretation, this is the movie where I just sort of see a rich guy that is crazy, that just puts on tights and goes out into the city and just beats on people and then goes back to going to parties. And to be fair, like, yeah, that's kind of what the Batman was doing in that very early Batman portrayed by Robert Patterson. But in that movie, to me, that made more sense because we clearly establishing that he's an extremely bitter, hateful individual. Oh, yeah. I mean, that Bruce Wayne is a world different than this one. I mean, that Bruce Wayne is bitter and this one is just empty. Like, he's a shell of a person. But there's not really an arc in the movie where he learns to become something more. Here, it's just like he just wants revenge on the guy that killed his parents, and... And then he gets it. Yeah. There's no real arc. He just is Batman, and he uses gadgets and stuff, and... Like, the part of the movie that especially fell apart for me, honestly, Alex, was the climax. It's the part where he comes in in the big jet plane to stop Joker's big party that he's using to throwing millions and millions of dollars into a crowd of people to lure them into the streets of Gotham so that he can deploy these Macy's Day parade balloons with gas attached to them that he's going to use to kill the crowd. You're like, okay, now Batman's going to swoop in and save the day. And so Batman does come in in the jet plane, but he kind of just, like, he's kind of just showing off. He's, like, doing a bunch of twists and turns and tricks in the Batjet, and then eventually, eventually... He goes to the balloons and grabs them and flies up into the sky and gets rid of them. But it's only after the gas has already been deployed and the people of Gotham are dying. And many of them have died or are, you know, escaping to the streets and hurting each other in panic from the gas. And I'm just so used to a Batman that just has, like, everything figured out that has an idea of what the villain's up to and is able to get there faster. And instead, this Batman is just, like flies the batjet in front of the moon because get it cool visual it looks like the bat logo but like because of all the cool visuals they are cool but all i'm thinking inside my head is batman get down there people are dying and you seem to be really taking your time with all of this i mean when, when i watched that sequence i sort of took it in the sense that like he also wasn't able to pilot it really well and he wasn't able to like that he hasn't had that much experience with it yet and that he had to keep, like, flying up because he actually was afraid he was going to crash into buildings or something until he could get, like, a much better aim because, like, flying that thing probably would not be a simple feat. But I definitely get where you're coming from. Like, even in the process of that, it does come off as a bit show-off-y, which I also think, though, he's trying to do to the Joker specifically to, like, strike fear into him. But you're right, it's just, it does delay the whole process a lot. (laughs) I just feel like there might have been better ways to instill fear than the methods he goes about. And the the problem I have, Alex, is that you you might have a point there that this is an early Batman, as we have established, and he's not used to flying it. But maybe if there was like a line of dialogue establishing, maybe Alfred tells him that, sir, you haven't used the plane before, blah, 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 you know, this is the first time in action. Instead, no, I mean, that's just something we're meant, you could assume 
from the way he flies in the movie. For me, I just was wondering what he was doing. Actually, yeah. If, I, if you think about it, I'm pretty sure he would not have flown that thing in a real world scenario, though. Because, I mean, at the beginning of the movie, it's implied that this is one of his first times out. And he's only thought of Hugh Thugs, who clearly you're not going to take down some rooftop guy with a, with a jet plane. So this probably is his maiden voyage. And to be fair to the movie, there is that, that scene where Alfred takes Vicky into the Batcave and her and Bruce are talking about, you know, this dual life he has. And Bruce clearly states that he is conflicted about what side of him he, he cares more about or how to balance both sides. And he's still kind of figuring himself out, which even then goes into the sequel as well. But I just feel like... There's the writing could have been a little clearer on how they were portraying this character so that I could be more involved in him. And instead, I'm more just confused and frustrated by just a lot of the decisions the movie makes. Because like I said, I just feel I feel a lot of Tim Burton's influence where there's cool visuals, but not a lot of logic going into what's going on. I mean, yeah, eventually he gets the balloons. And then we get, of course, the scene that everybody likes to bring up where Batman flies down. I don't know if he's trying to shoot Joker because he, he misses. He has, like, a target, and then another target, and then another target lined up over the Joker. He shoots, and then he misses, and then Joker pulls out this ridiculous, extremely long gun, like, like where the barrel is, like, the size of, like, as long as your arm. Uh, yes, yeah, as long as his leg. It was basically, like, the whole way down his pants, I guess. It's a joke in the sense that it's, like, a classic cartoon thing, but... Then we're supposed to believe that this gun is able to take down the Batjet. I just, uh, I don't even know what, you know, the Batjet crashes, Batman gets out, and then this is the part where Joker runs off with Vicky into the tower. And I'll be honest, Alex, I know, I know, this is probably a nitpick, but when Batman is running up the stairs, chasing them up the tower, all that was going through my mind was, dude, don't you have a grappling hook? Yes, I was talking to Katie about that when I was watching that scene, and we actually acknowledged, like, mostly in that point up until the movie batman had just got kicked around for the most part and punched some people but he had the fighting sequences were not that in depth but he runs up those steps through like freaking like 60 flights of it that right there was his biggest feat in the movie it wasn't the fight with like four thugs it was running up those flights of steps that would be so exhausting and i was like well maybe he doesn't have his grappling hook for some reason maybe when the plane crashed, he didn't have a chance to get it. But then, and then at the very end of the movie, he saves himself by using the grappling hook when he and Vicky are falling off the building. So he could have got up the whole building just like that, but he chooses not to. So it's a good thing, like, the Joker didn't just get bored with her and murder her in, like, the 10 minutes it probably took to get up there following them. Yeah, Alex, and even if you could argue, oh, the, the grappler's not long enough... Well, still, he could run up the tower certain ways and then use the grappling hook to get up the rest of the way. Like, there's no reason he shouldn't have used that damn thing. Like, he, should, he shouldn't have waited until the Joker pushed a bell down the tower that nearly crushes him. It's so, it's such a weird decision that I don't really understand why they, why they shot it that way. Because, you know, post the writings of comics like Batman Year One, where the most iconic scene in that comic is when he escapes the police by grappling hooking up into this top of this tower to fly away. Yeah, and then of course it leads to a lot of the the more iconic pieces of dialogue in the movie where Batman is like basically he just straight up says I'm going to kill you to the Joker because the Joker was the one who killed his parents. And then they also have Batman do 
Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Which is Joker's, like, calling card that he uses right. whenever he's about to kill someone. He's about to kill somebody. Yep. Oh, and also at this scene, Batman throws one of Joker's henchmen down, like, the 60 flight of steps to that guy's death, too. Don't forget. Uh, I mean, the guy was going to kill him, so, of course, I mean, you, you don't think Batman could have, you know, attached something to him to let him hang like he did in the Axis Chemicals plant. Like, he let that guy hang, but not this one. I just, <laughs> What? Even Keaton's delivery of have you ever danced with the devil in the pill moonlight is so like uncharismatic and understated. Like, yes, I obviously I've, I've kind of complimented what I liked about the understatedness of the performance, but in that moment, he just says it so casually. He's just like, Hey, you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? And it's like, uh, like this is the part where you would put emphasis, where you would be Batman. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Like it could have been, it would have been silly, but it would have been, it would have made more sense in the way that he. I just ugh, this movie. I want to like it so much more than I do because I think there's like the cinematography is great, the performances are for the most part strong. The score, Danny Elfman's score, is one of the best superhero oh, of scores. Course. I have ever like in the history of the superhero movie genre, but this movie, this movie's writing is so weird and inconsistent and strange and it has some great moments, but it also just has a lot of what moments. And unfortunately that will only go to increase uh, the negatives once we get into the sequel, which is just like a shame because I just, this movie, it's just, it's such a straight, like, I understand on some level why it made the box office return it did back well, then. Well, of course. I mean, this was the first Batman movie we had since the 60s, and this is the very end of the 80s by this point. They had done four consecutive Superman movies over, you know, the last bunch of DC major releases, and then they found out people were really into Batman, and ever since this movie, they can't go, like, five or six years without doing a Batman movie. Yeah. So on some level, I, I get wh- where the success came from, even if I now in a modern context watching this movie now, not just because of my own takes on Batman, but just in term- terms of the movie's inner internal logic about its versions of these characters, I find it inconsistent and kind of difficult to watch. I have trouble getting engaged in these characters when half the time I feel like I don't know what their motivations are or what they're doing. For me, what engaged me primarily was, frankly, the reporters. I liked Vicky, and I liked Knox a lot as they tried to figure out the mystery. I liked Knox trying to get in with Vicky, but Vicky's clearly just not having any of it. And obviously, like, to me, the mid part, like, this is one of the only movies I've seen where the middle of the movie is my favorite part. Because the middle is where all the Joker cosmetic stuff happens, and they're having all of Joker's crazy plans go on while while Batman's trying to figure out what's going on. Because, you know, Batman is still surprised that Jack Napier is even alive since he saw him die. Besides that the movie's about Vicky and Knox trying to figure out who Batman is and what his origins is, we of course learn the fate of Thomas and Martha Wayne, but the movie actually never goes into why he chose bats besides a one-off line when Batman takes Vicky into the Batcave where Batman just goes, bats, they're great survivors. And that's it. That's the only line in the movie that establishes why he's Batman, and I just... I mean, sure, sure. I mean, we don't necessarily need the whole origin where he falls into the hole and he sees the bat and it scares him. Oh, no. Because I forgot how it opened, and it looked like we were going to watch his parents get shot again and then him cry and all that, but it actually just turns out it's a similar case where muggers are going after parents and a child that Batman's watching from above a... uh... Yeah, that was a smarter choice. Yeah, no, because everybody... 
I think even by this point, everybody knows Batman's origins. They explain what it is without having to actually show it and then take up half the movie, like, doing this whole origin story setup thing. I'm glad that they just kind of brushed through that. To wrap this up here, we you said you do like Nicholson's Joker, and we also referenced Ledger and Hamill. I mean, do you think Nicholson stands up there among Jokers in particular? You liked his performance. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think Jack did a fantastic job. I feel like this is exactly how I view the comics and also what would inspire the animated series version of the character. And even though we know who he is and his origin, to me that just helps me better like and get engaged with the character because now I know that, oh, he, he had these interests and he was this guy and that's why he does things in the way he does. But he's also still the Joker. He's still crazy. He's still doing things for a laugh, but also for, you know, an underlying motivation. I think, yeah, I think Jack Nicholson's Joker is great. Do I think Heath Ledger's is still better? Yeah, I overall, I feel like that's definitely the on-screen version of the character I prefer the most in terms of the portrayal and the motivations and the performance of being both scary and funny. But Jack's character is no slouch. It absolutely needs to be up there in the pantheon of Joker performances. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think the character compares to Mark Hamill or Heath Ledger, but it is definitely solidly up there and above most other Jokers I can think of, of the many, many we have to choose from. Yes, so overall, Batman 1989 is, it's a movie that is incredibly important to the legacy of Batman as a character in terms of establishing what we now know in terms of how we visualize him on film and a lot of the ways that he's portrayed. I just find that when I go back and actually watch this movie, it's just so inconsistent with itself. It seems, I mean, yes, Bruce Wayne is unsure of his role as Batman, but by proxy, the movie sometimes feels like it's unsure of itself and what it's doing, and it feels like it was rewritten so many times. When I say something is good, I have to be on board with where it's going throughout the entire film and, and enjoy the character arcs and the motivations. And instead, this movie, I just found myself confused by a lot of the time. But, but, to say that it's better than its sequel is an understatement. This film still has many of moments where it has great villain performances, wonderful cinematography, but, boy, after its success, I guess they must have given Tim Burton more of the reins to do what he wanted creative-wise, because Batman Returns is very much a Tim Burton movie, and it's also yeah. one of the most baffling superhero sequels I have ever seen in my life. So back then, like decades ago, Alex, when this movie was first coming out, and then maybe even like a decade after, Returns was always seen in a positive light as the kind of the underrated Batman movie, the darker follow-up to Batman 89 that was unappreciated in its time for how dark it was but has grown to have a cult following over time that people seem to appreciate it more. But Returns, for me personally, has always been one of those movies where I liked it okay when I first saw it as a kid. But as the years went on and I watched Returns more, I began to like it less over time. And watching it now at the age of 30, I... A immensely just confusing and kind of bad movie. And it's strange because... On a technical level, this is like an improvement over 89. The film is gorgeous. The, the special effects are, are much better and, and hold up better in a modern context than many of the special effects in the first movie. The performances from the whole cast, they're giving it their all. But the script 
kills this movie. The dialogue writing is incomprehensible. It's weird. It's it's full of weird puns. It's trying to be poetic, but it's mostly just stupid. It's like I just straight up I think Returns is a bad movie. <laughs> so you said it's beautiful and the designs are beautiful. Does that include for you the designs of the characters themselves? Cuz let me say I am I am generally a Penguin fan and I am a Danny DeVito fan, but I do not at all like this interpretation of Danny DeVito as the Penguin. And a lot of it just comes down there's the whole story is just makes you scratch your head, but also the design is just weird and ugly. At least that's my take on it. That's why I was asking you. Here's the thing, Alex. In terms of what the movie was going for, I think they nailed what they were going for oh, in terms well, of interpreting uh, this character. Certainly. But, but in terms of what that means, in terms of the writing of this character in this movie, no, I think it's bad. But in terms of what they were going for, I think they nailed like the look of the character, like especially when they try to dress him up more and, and he looks more like the, the traditional Penguin character with the top hat and, and the suit right. and all that. I think that, that honestly looks good and DeVito was good casting for the character in the first place. While the Joker in Batman 89 was actually pretty accurate to a lot of what makes that character distinct in the comic books, for whatever reason, Tim Burton went down an extremely, extremely different route with portraying both Catwoman and the Penguin, who are the kind of main villains of this film. So we know Catwoman as she's a thief. She likes to steal stuff, but she also likes to stop crimes as well. And what has always made her an engaging character is because her and Batman occasionally click because they have similar motivations in terms of what should be done with the people of Gotham City. But the problem is, is that many times Catwoman is motivated by her internal motivations and less by what should be done because it's the right thing to do. So many times Batman and her work well together, but she ultimately betrays him because Batman is just stubbornly always locked to his own morality of, of what needs to be done to make things right. Now throw out everything I just said, and the Tim Burton movie portrays Catwoman as, uh, uh, she's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, which is good casting for Catwoman, but as a character, I don't even know what was going on here. So she's a secretary of Max Schreck, portrayed by Christopher Walken, another one of the movie's uh, kind of major villains. She's very much looked down upon by the men that run this business, and she's kind of like, they're all very sexist, and she's just kind of this woman that none of her opinions matter, and she's made to be pushed around. And you can tell that she's very stressed out by her job. And you get this weird scene where she, like, comes home, and she's just, like, talking to herself the full time. I think what the movie's trying to establish here is she's always been kind of unstable. Because she's like comes home and she's just talking to herself the whole time. She walks in and goes, honey, I'm home. Oh, right. I'm not married. <sighs> and then she's walking down into her living room. And then she talks to her cat about like, how was it out there doing your sexual yeah. escapades? And it's like, what is this dialogue? <laughs> uh. And then she goes back into work because she realizes she forgot a file that she needs to read up on because they're going to be interviewing Bruce Wayne soon at her job. And then Max Shrek also walks in while this is all going on. He sees her. 
and he eases her mind at first only to trick her and push her out a window to her death. And then oh. here's where it gets really weird. Well, I also thought it was weird that he pushes her out the window to her death and then he just like shrugs and walks away so that, you know, she's just on the ground outside of this broken window. So it's yeah. pretty obvious what, what transpired. You know, I guess he's not worried about, uh, you know, fingerprints or, you know, somebody finding her. You know, he just uh, he owns this town. I guess he doesn't have to worry at all. Yep. No problems at all. But she is dead at the bottom, except then cats begin crawling all over her body. A bunch of cats come in from the alley and they're crawling all over her, biting her fingers. Then all of a sudden she's alive and she's having like weird seizures as the cats bite her. And then she wakes so up. So she quote unquote comes back to life, which is exactly the same thing they do with Joker in the first movie. Have you ever seen a dead man or whatever? I, I mean, both of these villains are like extremely Tim Burton-y and Catwoman comes back to life and then Penguin it's just this freak of a child who was raised and then wants some sympathy and revenge. Uh, yeah. We'll get to Penguin, Alex. But uh, I know. But with Catwoman, yeah, so the cats bite her and she has all these seizures and then she comes back to life. And then she's still Selena Kyle, but she's clearly something in her mind has snapped and she goes back to her apartment right. and creates the Catwoman suit out of a bunch of just scraps of scraps of like leather that she bounced together into this skin tight suit and then she just goes out into the streets and she saves this this guy's like attacking a woman trying to steal her purse Catwoman attacks him and then she goes up to the girl and the girl's like oh thank you so much for saving me and Catwoman grabs the girl by the throat and goes oh yeah I'm sure you just wanted Batman to come here and save you so because it seems to be her motivations are is that she hates men of course but she also hates women that are weak that rely on men. But then she has a relationship with Bruce in this movie. Because, of course, Catwoman <laughs> has to have a relationship with Bruce Wayne. And, oh my goodness, I could not possibly even comprehend what those two see in each other. Like, I think it's supposed to be a duality because of them both having secret identities. But that, but they don't even know that until later on in the movie. And No, because I, I thought earlier in the movie that she at least knew who he was, but then, like, they apparently did not know that because they, like, have this big <gasps> moment when they figure it out. And I was like, oh, I th well, it would have made sense if she knew to some extent about this because I thought that's why they were, you know, like, getting chummy to this degree. Huh. Okay. So she just becomes this incomprehensible character throughout the rest of the movie where she... Seems to not like men, seems to not like weak women, but obviously the motivation is that she hates Max Shrek and she wants to kill Max Shrek, of course. But it's just, then she has like this whole thing where she has, where she internalizes that she has nine lives, but it actually turns out that's actually true. Yeah, I don't uh, know what they were, until you see her again at the very end showing that after being shot like 10 times, she's still alive. I was sort of okay with that being her finale, but then when I thought about it, it's like... Is she magic? I mean, I guess she came back from the dead, Alex, so anything is possible. But I just... But I thought she quote-unquote came back from the dead, not she came back from the dead. I just... Ugh. Knowing this movie, she probably did actually die and come back from the dead, Alex. I don't even know. So, that's Catwoman. We'll get back to her because of, you know, what she has to do throughout this movie. But we also, of course, we of course have to talk about the top billing of this movie, which is Danny DeVito as the Penguin. And so the Penguin, in the comics, is... A crime boss that has a bird theme. 
That's it. Well, I mean, we've seen a lot of different interpretations of Penguin throughout the comics, too. But, but usually, yes, in basis, it is that. And it's not this. Okay, so what <laughs> Tim Burton decides to reimagine Penguin as is... So the movie begins with his parents. His father's played by Pee Wee Herman. Yes, yes. Why? <laughs> I, I guess just because Tim Burton wanted to hang out with him again, because it's not like he has anything to do with the movie. No, no. Which you said, and the funny thing was, so I should mention, I watched Returns with my other co-host Zach, and Zach's never seen the movie before. He had seen Batman '89, and when the movie first started, and he saw Paul Rubens Pee Wee Herman, but he just was like, that guy. Doesn't he seems out of place in this movie? <laughs> was Zach's immediate reaction? And I was like, "Yeah, Zach, that's Pee Wee Herman." And he's like, "Oh, okay then." So anyway, Pee Wee Herman's the penguin's father, and they give birth to the penguin, and they're immediately like, "Oh, this is like a devil child. He's like tainted." And well, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, the baby penguin like eats a cat whole. Because he was deformed with flippers, but I don't know why that means he would eat cats whole just because you have, like, weird fingers. Well, no, they just portray him like he was just born, like, as this demented demon <sighs> baby. Because they keep him inside of, like, this locked box cage. And then a cat gets near the cage, yeah, and he pulls the cat into the cage and eats it. And it's like, what the hell is going on in this movie? And then, <laughs> and then the parents, you know, <sighs> since he's such this demon child and they can not raise him, they, they put him in a basket and they place him into the Gotham River during winter. And, and the river descends down into the sewers, where we learn later that he was then raised by a troop of circus performers mm -hmm. and also penguins that escaped from uh, the Gotham Zoo. Arctic world under the Gotham Zoo, yes. Seems to be abandoned Gotham Zoo where the Arctic exhibit, yeah. Is that where the, the Carney people had already been living? Were they too living with the penguins or did he meet them first and then they all moved to the penguins or did they come later? That isn't really established. The implication is that I think... I think they were just there. They were already living amongst the penguins, I guess. Uh, and yes, this whole troop of carny workers is just something that Tim Burton definitely did because he's Tim Burton and he was like, ooh, we are carny workers. Yes, I like this. Uh, Even though it's just a, a strange, weird concept to put with penguin, part of what irks me is that they have this whole circus theme and that they don't even tie this as like leftovers to the Joker in some sense because... I mean, it's a bunch of clowns attacking Gotham, but it just has nothing to do with that. Nope. Not all evil clowns are the same. Uh, okay, so Penguin is just kind of hanging out through the beginning of the movie, and then he kidnaps Max Shrek, and he brings Max Shrek down into the sewers because he wants to strike a deal with Max Shrek, or like basically hold him at gunpoint and be like, no, you guys, you're going to help me out. And he basically just says, because I want to find my mommy and daddy and figure out who they really were so that I can figure out who I truly am. And it's like a scene where, like many scenes in this movie, where the dialogue is very stilted exposition, where this character is just blowing out their motivations in the most direct way possible. Because he wants to live among the people of Gotham up above, which doesn't seem to actually be the case, I don't think. I well, think, no, he thinks that, but yeah, I think to some extent he's looking for exception, but he does not get that. So later, yeah. he, you know, he gets angry again, but... Because Max Shrek, um, of course, agrees to this, but he doesn't see Penguin as this lost soul. He instead sees Penguin as a pawn he can then use to 
basically to throw out the current Gotham mayor that likes Batman and instead put in a new mayor that the he can then have control over. Yes, but the here, perfect yeah, plan. Yes. yes, put this guy, the penguin, <laughs> the guy that lives in the sewers as the leader of Gotham City that he just assumes the voters will be like, yeah, sure. And so the movie tries to make us believe that the people of Gotham will vote for him because we have like this whole arc where Max Shrek takes him up to the surface and vouches for well, him. Well, Brandon, and- I believed that they would vote for him because the people of this Gotham City are complete morons. Yeah, I mean, we don't really get as much time with them here as we really did in the first Batman, where there's a lot more shots of, like, just, you know, stuff happening around the city and the streets. This movie is primarily a Penguin and Catwoman movie that Batman just kind of shows up in sometimes because it has to remember Batman's in it. (laughs) Yeah, actually, like, I think the first time you really see Bruce Wayne is, like, 38 minutes into the movie. Batman's in it before there, but I'm not even sure if he has any dialogue or not. So that might be the first time you hear from him, really. Well, yeah, he uses most of that time to establish Penguin and Catwoman. Max Shrek agrees to Penguin's terms and allows him to research his parents. And there's this, like, this part where, like, Batman's trying to figure out who the Penguin is. Like, at first, Batman's supportive of him. He's like, well, I really hope he does find out who his parents is. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> And then he sees Penguin researching. and But there's like this part where Bruce is like, I think Penguin already knows who his parents are and he has some other motive that's actually going on here. And I don't... My expectations, Alex, were that it was going to be revealed that the Penguin actually did kill his parents and that he was all just like playing off a ruse. But no, there's a very genuine scene where he walks into the graveyard and finds out that his parents have already passed away and he puts a flower at their grave and walks up to the gates and the media of Gotham is, like, interviewing him, saying, like, oh, you'll, you'll never be able to truly speak to them. How do you feel about all this? And Penguin gives these very heartfelt, poetic responses. Yeah. And saying that, oh, I now know who my parents are. I am no longer the Penguin. I am Oswald Cobblepot, a noble, and I will be a good force for this city. And this I is, am a I'm, man. Yes, I am a man. I am not a Penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I guess I see what they were going for, and then this would be how he becomes the Penguin, and he becomes this noble guy through forgiving his parents and moving up the ranks. But no, I mean, in the end, the movie becomes about Max Shrek trying to make him a mayoral candidate, and my god. Okay, so I gotta talk about the most baffling scene in the entire movie, which is a twofer. It's one scene that happens right after another, where the first one is after Catwoman first meets Batman, and she doesn't like Batman because he he can he's able to outwit her. And then, oh, oh yeah, let me read the dialogue from that scene here quick. So, when Batman and Catwoman encounter each other, so there's mistletoe over top of them in this scene while they're fighting. Oh. And then this dialogue happens. This is Catwoman and Batman. You're just catnip to a girl like me. Handsome dazed and to die for batman says mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it catwoman says but a kiss can be even deadlier if you mean it you're the second man who killed me this week but i've got seven lives left batman says i tried to save you catwoman says seems like every woman you try to save ends up dead or deeply resentful you should retire 
where I don't know where she's getting all this information about Batman from, but all the dialogue is like this. No, well, yeah, because they had that scene, and that's why I thought like she had already like connected who Batman and Bruce Wayne were by this point. But that was no, that just would have made sense. That wasn't actually the case. Then we get the most baffling scene in the movie, which is then when she can't get through to Batman, Catwoman comes to the Penguin naturally to try to try to start a truce. You say naturally. <laughs> I don't, I don't I even don't know. know how, she, why these two would ever want to team up because she doesn't like men. I guess because they're both underdogs in I the mean, sense. I mean, she doesn't like him. She doesn't like being around him, clearly, but she just thinks that she can use him to get back at Batman, who she decides she's mad at more than anyone else right now. Yes. Okay. So, this scene, this dialogue, this dialogue. So, Catwoman walks in. And Penguin, laying on a bed, looks at her and says, Ah, just the pussy I've been looking for. (laughs) Which, already, great start. Yep, wonderful piece of dialogue there. Great start. And the movie just becomes a bunch of horrible puns, cat puns and penguin puns, bird puns, in between these two characters. As they go off at each other, Penguin is clearly trying to get with Catwoman. And Catwoman doesn't want to have anything to do with him because she just wants to strike up a truce. Okay, let me read some more dialogue here. We need to talk. You see, you and I have something in common. Sounds familiar. Appetite for destruction? Contempt for the czars of fashion? Wait, don't tell me. Naked sexual charisma? Pretty good reading, Brandon, but you have to remember, whenever Danny DeVito speaks as the penguin, every few words are surrounded by... Yeah, he has so many little grunts. Yeah, usually penguin squawks, like, usually, you know, he goes... But, no, here is just, like, one of Danny DeVito's... Always sunny in Philadelphia, Frank Reynolds' persona is like breathing heavily as like a troll or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, we gotta do <laughs> I love Danny DeVito, and I think he was good casting for the Penguin, but like everything else in this movie, the direction is just baffling and unpleasant to watch. Yes, that's the thing. It's unpleasant to watch generally. Yeah, as we've no doubt established with having a scene where. Penguin is is constantly doing innuendos to get with Catwoman. Penguin, for some reason, has a cage in his room with a bird in it. Catwoman walks up to the cage and they have like this kind of creative camera work where they're having dialogue while they're being shown through the insides of the cage. And then Catwoman opens up the cage, takes the bird out, and puts the bird in her mouth like she's going to eat it. As a way to intimidate Penguin, but it just so happens that a black cat is also on Penguin's bed, so Penguin picks up one of his umbrellas and- A knife, holds a knife up to its neck like as a threat. Holds up a knife to the cat as a threat, and then they, you know, immediately stop what they're doing. She spits out the bird and they can- She opens up her mouth and it flies out. There you go. Yeah, it's totally fine, and then Penguin stops trying to hurt the cat, and it's just- So, now they have an understanding of each other. She will eat a bird, he will kill a cat, which, you know, is kind of unfair because she lets that bird go and Penguin lets the cat go. But if you're counting, he's already eaten one cat in the movie, so he's already one up on her, but she no, couldn't she know that. she been able to know that. Oh my god, that moment. Just like, what is going on? And then, and then right after that is another extremely baffling scene, which is when Catwoman leaves, Max Shrek comes up into the room and is just like, hey! Cobblepot, come down here. I have something to show you. And Cobblepot's not really, like, dressed up for any occasion. He's wearing, like, his his usual, like, sewer clothes. And 
then for Max to show the penguin what he's trying to show he's him. He's got like sardines or some some sort of fish. And yeah. He pulls out a fish and he jiggles it in the air and the penguin's like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he's raised in the sewers, I guess. And then he lures him downstairs. And then it turns out to be a big surprise because this is when Max Shrek reveals that he's going to have the penguin run for mayor. And here's like his big team that's going to campaign for him. And then this gets to one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, whether you like it or not to. Yeah, where they're trying to talk about, oh, uh, how would you like to have this to help you with this way or like to help you with this? Here's your image consultant. Yeah, and they're going back and forth with Penguin about imaging and of course all Penguin's doing is looking at the woman and making innuendos at her and just being disgusting. And then the guy... And then that line of dialogue where Penguin is oh, like... Oh, yeah, he says, like, it could be worse, and you could be this. And he says, ah, yeah, and it could be worse for you, too. Your nose could be gushing blood. And then they both kind of laugh together. And then he just, like, jumps on this guy and bites his nose, and then this horrendous shoot of blood gushes out everywhere. I hadn't. I don't think I've watched this movie with my parents, but, like, I had heard about this scene from them in particular a number of times because it is apparently so memorable and disturbing to a lot of people watching Danny DeVito like bite off somebody's nose essentially Uh. Uh, and then you know because they're all under Max Shrek's payroll they're just like okay with this and they're just gonna go and continue to campaign for Penguin and it's like are who are we like on some level the movie wanted us to feel sorry for Penguin but now we're just like what is what is happening? I guess we're supposed to hate him now and he's a monster. It's like, and and yeah, and then his plan works. They frame up Batman and then suddenly he's talking trash on the other mayor and you have all these people going, yeah, Penguin! And it's just like... This is the first time Penguin has run for mayor, even to this date, like in the 1960s television show, Penguin ran for mayor as well. And he was also... Not the most reputable character, but... And and though the people in that city of 1966 Gotham were also kind of morons, he persuaded them to go with him by, like, wanting to legalize, you know, bad things and be underhanded and shady, but in, like, a suave enough way that it makes sense and it just looks like he wants to have some fun. And this, this monster penguin, I don't know why people are going along with it, even if they didn't see him. Bite off somebody's nose. He can't, like, stand somewhere, like, five minutes without grunting. And he's so pale. I mean, it's just another Tim Burton thing. Like, I I get that he lived in a sewer and was away from the sun for so long. But, I mean, he's just got this ghostly white face with, for some reason, like, regular shaded circles around his eyes. And this is just another one of those, like, what? What? (sighs) You see, in, in these interpretations where... Gotham is stupid and go along with things. Usually it pays off for that particular incarnation of it, though, whether it's when this happened in the 1966 series or similar mayoral runnings in 2022's Harley Quinn, I think Joker was, or some other characters are doing things. It pays off, though, because it's satirical enough that they're trying to make it into a joke, at least, or it's supposed to be funny. This is just everyone's a moron, but... It's mostly a sad and freakish story, so continue to follow along and ignore the fact that everyone is a moron. Sorry about that tangent. No, Alex, it's perfectly warranted. And people are totally okay with voting for the Penguin. Like, if they truly wanted this to be 
a tragic story about this character who was abandoned, who becomes an awful villain because of his upbringing, and we're supposed to feel sorry for him, then all they would have needed to do, Alex, was have his parents give him away because of his deformed hands. And that's it. <laughs> yes. Instead of making him a demon monster baby kept in a cage that eats cats, what the hell was you thinking, writers? I just, what? So, um, a bunch of stuff. Oh, God, so much stuff happens. Like, and it's just, it's all yeah, A lot of convoluted plot that's kind of hard to keep track of, especially because a lot of the plot is just guided by, like, Catwoman's motivation at the time, which... She doesn't really have a consistent goal, so she keeps, like, switching back and forth with all this, too. Now I'm helping Batman. Now I'm helping Penguin. Now I'm gonna try to save this woman who was on Penguin's team, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to even think where we're at now, because I know that, of course... I mean, I, I honestly do like the segment where, where uh, Penguin puts a bomb in Batman's car and controls it so that he takes control away from Batman. It's a, it's a yeah, fun it's sequence, a, it's a... and I like and I like Penguin in that weird-looking video game oh. car thing. But, but sure. and Zach actually pointed this out to me while watching, he was like, wait, how, how did the Penguin figure out how to disable the Batmobile? No, the Penguin didn't. His circus crew did, remember? The circus crew goes in, and the clowns look at this, like, digital manual thing, of how to turn a Batmobile into an H-bomb. And then Dr. Clownius goes in and uh, tampers with the wires, of course. Okay, it was purely the circus crew, because I thought part of it would have been his connections to Max Shrek and the technology he'd have available to him with that connection. But if it was purely just the circus Maybe, crew, but they I just... do not they do not mention yes, that at right. all. And what we see is the circus crew doing this thing which again is you know this is a story that has happened before i think it is iconic that penguin has taken over the batmobile because i've also seen this in batman the animated series there was a whole episode about it but if you want to watch it well executed watch that instead it also ends with batman and robin in the batmobile having heard from the mechanic who the penguin had taken hostage having slipped them like some race car lingo type thing about what had happened so that they know how to escape. And this one, eventually, the bat computer just says, oh, foreign object detected. And then their clever way to get out of it is that J Batman just punches a bunch of times the inside of the car until he can rip out the bomb that was in punching distance, fortunately. With classic dialogue like, I played this stinking city like a harp from hell. Which, of course, he needs to say, so that way we can set up the thing that happens later. That all happens, so that way he can frame Batman. They also have... There's, of course, the moment... I think it's before or after this where Penguin basically sets up the death of that... Ice princess. Yeah, she she's killed, and Batman happens to be placed at the exact moment. And then also, we forget to mention here that the Penguin also filled the Christmas tree in Gotham City Plaza with bats that trigger... The moment that she dies to make people really, really sure it's Batman. But I also found it interesting that Commissioner Gordon never once believes it. Huh, this is ridiculous. This old goat of a Commissioner Gordon, by the way. Yeah, there's even a part where he's on TV holding the batarang that was found at the scene of the crime and goes, purely circumstantial evidence. <laughs> it just makes Commissioner Gordon come off like an idiot. <laughs> he knows Batman is good because they met that one time in the first movie and probably never again 
Penguin goes to give a speech as because the people of Gotham love him. Batman, through the Bat computer, plays out stuff that Penguin said while remote controlling Batman's car through the speakers in Gotham City Plaza as a way to portray the true nature of who the Penguin really is. And he literally plays, you know, <laughs> I play this thing in uh, City yeah. like a harp from hell over and over and over again on the speakers, which that's just kind of a thing he said. I mean, I guess it, it is kind of damning, but... I feel like Batman would have used something a little more direct, like evidence wise to condemn the penguin than just here's a recording of a thing he said, because of course, immediately the stupid people of Gotham city who are influenced by anything immediately go, Hey, you suck. And they just start throwing things at him. Well, I guess that's why he had to use that kind of piece of evidence because anything more damning might not have directly made the people of Gotham city feel as personally offended. Hey, he's talking about us. Get him! This does lead to one of the only pieces of dialogue in the movie I did think was funny, which is when the penguin pulls up an umbrella to block the shots from the audience. It says something along the lines of, Why do people always bring tomatoes and vegetables to a speech? <laughs> okay. Uh, that was okay, I guess. I don't really know. It just feels like a weird fourth wall kind of line in this movie. But then Penguin gets away and now he's mad that his reputation has been ruined. And his plan next is to kidnap all the children in Gotham because Max Shrek's having like a big party that all of the noble parents are at. And for some reason, they left all of their children at home completely alone <laughs> so that Penguin can now stage a plan to kidnap all their kids. You're right. They were all completely alone. I guess none of them were being supervised yeah, there, at all. There were no nannies or anything. Uh. And the thing is, uh, Alex, they're all kidnapped off screen. We only see them being placed in the cages that Penguin puts them in. We never actually see... The, the train with cages, yeah. Yeah, the, tr the big train with cages. And the thing is, this is like a plot you could use for a climax of a movie, but this is like thrown out immediately because he kidnaps all these kids and then he goes to Max Shrek. Who he is particularly mad at now, but actually I don't think that really Max Shrek has done anything to justify Penguin be that mad at him now, maybe before he had. I guess he's just jealous of him. I guess, because he goes there to tell the people of Gotham that he's taken their kids. And this is when he goes to take Max Shrek's son. Max Shrek goes, no, don't take my son, take me. And he gives a good reason why. Like, th this is why you hate me. Which actually didn't seem that consistent with the character as I'd known him before to actually, like care that much about family and not just about protecting himself. I didn't really feel like that's what he would have done based on the character as I had yet known him. Right. I mean, he's been so concerned with his legacy throughout the movie and talking a lot about what he wants to leave behind, which is, you know, a bunch of chemicals and toxic waste to dump into the Gotham River. But he just goes with the Penguin and sacrifices himself for the sake of his son. But then after this, Batman, like, immediately saves the kids and then that plot threads over. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, when Batman suits up in that sequence, we learned that sometimes we see Batman has, like, bat poles, like he did in the 66 show and some other iterations. And this one, I noted that he comes down a bat slide. I didn't, I didn't notice that. That's, uh, that's an interesting yeah. choice for this one. It feels like the only reason they had the whole kidnapping children plot was just so Penguin could then kidnap Max Shrek and take him with them for the finale. But you, but you, you could have had, you could have so many other reasons why he would have taken Max Shrek instead of having this child kidnapping plot that could have been the climax of the movie, but instead it's just this thing that happens I mean, for five minutes. At least emotionally, it sort of makes sense that he's so bitter of everybody. Now, now that Batman's like 
messed up his plan and he can't be mayor. He's rejected by the city again and all he was looking for is acceptance. And that goes back to his issue of being abandoned as a child. So to some extent, I can accept emotionally that this would be his plan for this iteration of the Penguin. And it leads fair enough to his escalation to then just trying to wipe out everybody as the next obvious I guess I just feel like that plan would have been a more, a better motivation for that character and his past for a finale instead of his ultimate plan, which, yes, is to destroy Gotham. Destroy Gotham. <laughs> this is the best part of the movie. Destroy Gotham with with remote-controlled penguins. Like, they're, they're real penguins. They're real penguins. With missiles. The, yes, with missiles. they're real penguins, like an army of them, with, with rockets strapped to their backs, and they're being, like, commanded by, like, a sound wave signal that dictates to them what directions to turn to it's just, it's a lot of shots of this armed penguin parade marching too i'll tell you that but you know what it was delightful oh those I mean, little guys yes <sighs> the scene where right before he executes the plan where he has just like this giant crowd of penguins sitting in this audience seating area that he then gives this giant speech to where he's just like ah oh, yes my brethren to this giant army of penguins before telling them to go off into the water to execute their plan. Zack was just laughing his ass off throughout this entire scene. I, I swear, <laughs> I remember distinctly watching this one of these times where Batman is flying his bat boat plane thing through the sewers and then on his radar, like every time it would go, it would like squawk when it like goes over more penguin locations or something like, what, what? Yes, and yes. It just looks like he's about to crack up, too, with how ridiculous this whole thing seems to be. I don't know if that was the case, but it really looks that way. For a movie that's, in many ways, darker than its predecessor, the fact that it ends with a penguin army attacking Gotham City with rockets, like something that would be out of, like, Super Friends or the 60s show. is just. not know if that would be. You think so? I mean, this is too ridiculous I, I don't that. know. This might have been too <laughs> Maybe. I mean, to be fair, I haven't watched enough of the Super Friends. I can't tell you for sure if that's something they would have done, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't mind like five minutes of penguins parading after watching like an hour and a half of Danny DeVito walking around in like this white suit that really exposes his butt crack. Because I'll say never once is this movie dull. Throughout, it is so horrifically crazy and baffling that I never once was feeling like I wasn't engaged because I was engaged in the sense that I had just never had any idea what was going on. It felt like it was rewritten so many times. The dialogue is terrible. It's just fascinating in how crazy and weird and out there it is. Like, it definitely feels like Burton was given more creative control, and that seems to be a bad decision in the end. Yeah, No, I think he was. I think I read that he didn't necessarily want to come on to a second Batman project, but they decided they would allow him more creative control and to pick some more of his ways of doing things. And this is what we got. I don't even really know what happened. Like, I guess, like, Batman fights him outside a little bit and then punches him and then he's he's down again. Well, well Batman finds out a way to dispel the signal that oh, yeah, that yeah, penguin yeah. is sending to the, his giant penguin army with rockets. And the penguin rocket army is said commanded to go to Arctic World, Penguin's base, and shoot the rockets into Penguin's base. So then Batman parks the Batmobile there and 
punches the penguin and the penguin crashes through a window down into his base where he falls into the water down there. He's essentially dead at this point and doesn't appear again until the final part of, of the climax. After the other climax that goes back to his climax. Yeah. Cause instead of like wrapping the competing stories together, they just kind of end penguins climax. And then they have the second climax with Catwoman and Max Shrek. Yeah, Catwoman comes down because she knows uh, Max Shrek's been taken by Penguin, and she, of course, wants to kill Max Shrek. And this leads to the climax of her Nine Lives backstory, where Max Shrek just keeps shooting her over and over and over again, and she counts down the number of lives she now has from each bullet that's gone into her. And with two lives left, she then grabs this taser she's had throughout the movie, puts it up to her mouth... And says, how about a kiss? And then she grabs like an electrical cord that's over near Max Shrek and combines the two together to... She basically electrocutes Max Shrek into like a burnt corpse. Yeah, by kissing him through the taser with it. And then this is after Batman's tried to stop her, of course, by saying there's a better way to solve this. You can send him to jail, which I don't really know why like... He thinks he's qualified to tell her this because earlier in this movie, he blows up a guy. He he takes this bomb and there's this tough guy. He's not going down, but eventually he's able to shove this bomb down the guy's pants and kick him into the sewer. And then there's a giant explosion. And it's not just enough that Batman had picked up a bomb and then circumstantially put it on this guy who was too big to punch out and then exploded him. Batman gets the bomb from another thug in a scene. And then we cut to a Catwoman scene where she's, like, taking down some security guards at a mall. And then we cut back to this. So it seemed to me that Batman's been walking around this entire time with his bomb wondering, hmm, who would be the best guy to explode with this? Until he finds the perfect guy. I don't know. I just thought this was a good time to bring that scene up now that we're uh, talking about him lecturing Catwoman about sending Max Shrek to jail. Yeah, because you're forgetting here, Alex, that when he puts the bomb into that thug's pants, he smiles. He does smile. Yeah, because the thug at first thinks that Batman tries to punch him and obviously doesn't do much damage to this guy. And the guy like smiles like, ha, got you, Batman. And then he hears the ticking in his pants and Batman smiles and then kicks the guy into the sewer hole. And then Batman walks away as we see this massive explosion come up from the sewer hole. And it's like, what is going on with Batman? This is just like, I mean, yes, of course, we established in the first movie that he's kind of inconsistent and he kills sometimes. But you think they would have more directly made a point to course correct what they wanted this Batman to be in this movie. But nope, he still just kind of kills people sometimes. And then also lectures, especially given the fact that he's talking about that at the end of this movie in this one, like, you know, you could buy in the last one that he was after revenge, but no, you're Mr. Play by the rules now, except when it's comedic for me to put a bomb down someone's pants. Yeah, he just goes to Catwoman and it's like, no, we can take Max Shrek to jail. You you don't need to kill him. And, and you know, she takes Batman away for daring. I mean, I know it's going to feel so sweet. Like when Joker killed my parents and then I like launched this bungee cord thing to his legs while he was trying to escape on a helicopter ladder and it it, like connected him to this gargoyle and then it stretched him out until he fell down to his death. (laughs) You don't want that. No, 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 no. I mean, we get even to the point where Batman is trying so hard to convince Catwoman to not kill Max Shrek. He takes off his mask. Yeah. And just reveals his identity to her and Max Shrek. Well, at that point, then you would think, well, if he's doing this, then 
Maybe he knows Max Shrek is going to die anyway, because, you know, that would not be a good person to know your identity, probably, if you're assuming he's going to be living, you know. Because he knows, like, you, he knows who you are. You had a scene together, for goodness sakes, with him and Bruce Wayne. Yes, because they're rival business guys, and Max Shrek would use this absolutely to one over on Bruce Wayne, but... And no, I don't agree, Alex. I don't think he knew. I think he just is an idiot. He just took off his mask and revealed himself to Catwoman. No, yeah. And just no, no, he didn't know. Catwoman scratches him to basically be like, I don't care anymore. And she kills Max Shrek. And your assumption is that she may have died too. And then Penguin re-enters the scene. He, of course, had collapsed into the pool of water in Arctic World after falling through that window above. And he's now basically dying. And he walks out onto his platform in the middle of... The aquarium. Which is also, by the way, it seems to be his aquarium, but it was the same place he was dangling Max Shrek in that giant birdcage over saying... Once you fall in the acid bath of your chemicals, you're going to die. But this is the same thing that is like penguins are swimming around in and having a good day. Yeah, I've, maybe he was planning to put the chemicals in later. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know, but uh, then the penguins might get burned up. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true, Alex. Max Shrek is now a burnt corpse and the penguin walks up onto the platform and he collapses. Well, he's like bleeding okay. out of his mouth and he's clearly just like moments away from death. And he walks over to his giant bag oh, of yeah, that, uh, yeah. umbrellas. Okay, Alex. So and this is something that Zach kind of argued with to me about while going through this movie. And Zach was just like, why does he have a bunch of umbrellas? What's the connection here? Because of course, in the original comics and in the Batman the Animated Series, he's like a nobleman. He's a crime boss, but he's also a gentlemanly type guy. And an umbrella is a very gentlemanly type thing to have, not just for bad weather, but as an accessory. Yeah, yeah. So that's why, you know, he was walking around with those in the 40s when this was created and it all was very clear, especially if, you know, he's wearing tuxedos and top hats and trying to be the the cream of the corn or whatever. But in this movie, the context seems to be, as far as I could gather, that people had been throwing away a lot of umbrellas and Penguin had just been collecting them and adding accessories to them to use them as weapons. But the only reason he would choose umbrellas specifically is just because that's what the character in the comic book would do and not because it necessarily makes sense for this iteration of the character. No, that is a very good point right there. So he grows to grab an umbrella, grabs the wrong one. That doesn't do anything. There was his gag umbrella that turns into a uh, children's piece that has stuffed animals dangling over him. I guess he was swinging around when he was threatening to abduct the kids, but I guess that actually didn't have anything to do with that because his thugs did not take that umbrella. Hmm. Oh, no, that's the umbrella he used to lure the kids away. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Earlier in the movie, yeah. He's like, oh, man. And then he's about to grab another umbrella, but goes, but first, I think I need a cool drink of ice water. And he walks down back to the water, and instead he just collapses onto the floor. And then his penguins. The other most memorable part in this movie that I was told about time and again by my parents before I saw it. He's going to yes. bite somebody's nose, and it'll be a bloody mess. And then the ultimate eulogy for the penguin. Yes, the eulogy for the penguin, where his penguins come out from behind the exhibit and put their flippers around his arms and drag him into the water to let him sink to the bottom. And I have to say, at least throughout Climax, the penguins did look good. It was a mixture of actual live penguins, which obviously look good, and then some animatronic penguins, and then some people in penguin suits, including... 
including Felix Silla, the actor who played Cousin It in the original run of the Addams Family. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Honestly, for the most part, I think the special effects in Batman Returns are really good. I think they're an improvement over the special effects we saw in 89. And on a technical level, the movie does a great job with what it's shooting for. Just that what it's shooting for is an incomprehensible nightmare mess of nothing. Emphasis on nightmare. It's it's so strange because despite how silly it all is with the penguins and all that, Danny Elfman's score is beautiful. When Penguin falls and the penguins go to take Penguin into the water to leave him to die, it's this emotional, beautiful, dramatic score that perfectly accents the scene and would have worked great if I cared about anything that was going on or wasn't just baffled by all of it. Or you could you could take this penguin dumping him into the sea as their final tribute to him a little bit more seriously, perhaps. That's what I remember saying to Zach when that scene happened was just like, what a beautiful, beautifully shot, beautifully scored, and beautifully acted moment for such an awful character. <laughs> <sighs> then we get like a, a big epilogue scene. Batman is driving away for Christmas with Alfred, but he sees a shadow and an alleyway that seems to look like Catwoman. He walks down the alleyway and instead just sees a black cat and he takes the black cat into his car. Alfred's like, Merry Christmas. Bruce Wayne is like, Merry Christmas, Alfred. Goodwill toward men and women. And they drive off into the night as the bat signal appears and Catwoman appears from below the frame. She's still alive. She still has one life left. And then the movie ends. And Zach and I sat there in silence for approximately two minutes saying nothing. (laughs) And then finally recovered and began to try to attempt to discuss what we had just taken in. Zach said that the movie was one of the most baffling and stupid things he had seen in quite some time. And I can't necessarily disagree with him because I've never, I mean, as I've said, as I've watched Returns over the years, it's always gotten worse because of its bad dialogue, its ridiculous story. But now, seeing it now, so many years later with some of the great Batman films we have now and so many different interpretations of the character out there, this film is... Because in the next episode, we're going to be talking about Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which are universally like not well-received movies in terms of the drastic tonal change they make in terms of interpreting Batman and trying to distance themselves from the darkness of the Burton films. Which, I mean, to be fair, this did get pretty dark. I mean, you know, like between biting off people's noses and all the sexual innuendos and just some of the like unnecessary, like the violence of the, the severed hand that Penguin shakes his hand with, a charred skeleton. I mean, this was a movie that, you know, they were marketing McDonald's kid toys to like, come see Batman Returns, kid, more Batman fun. Oh, I t- totally understand that but here's the thing right batman returns isn't bad because it's a dark movie it's bad because it's a bad movie (laughs) it's writing is terrible it's character interpretations are baffling inconsistent and awful and unpleasant to watch and batman spends most of the movie just kind of in the background and then occasionally showing up to beat up thugs off screen because oh yes we remember batman is a part of this movie too it's Tim Burton given direct creative control and the movie is a perfect, perfect summation of the badness that he would go on to push further in his movies to come, whether it be his awful remake of Planet of the Apes 
or his weird and maybe not as awful, but certainly not great reimaginings of stuff like Alice in Wonderland and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He's always been so concerned with his damn visuals that he never sets time aside for creating a good story with interesting characters. He always creates what he thinks is going to be engaging and then just says, oh, well, it's my interpretation. And to me, this his interpretations are always weird, off-putting, and bad. Yep. So... With time, as mentioned, this was really poorly received when it came out, largely because it was too dark. But over time, it's built sort of a cult following up of people who have come to appreciate it over the years. What do you th- what do you make of that, Brandon? I'm not sure what to make of that. I don't know necessarily if just in a context from decades ago. I don't know what about it would have been seen as better, though. Because just taking it on its own merits, not just saying like, oh, because it's not like the Batman we know, just in its own inner continuity, the movie doesn't make any sense. It's just, maybe it's the visuals, maybe it's the score, maybe it's the few Batman action scenes that are entertaining that are squeezed in in between all of the awful Catwoman and Penguin stuff. I mean, to be fair, Michelle Pfeiffer's performance as Catwoman was one of the most widely praised things about the movie. And on a simple technical level of acting, yes, Michelle Pfeiffer is giving her soul to that performance. But it's it's a terribly written character. I guess people simply just maybe this interpretation, maybe just like these performances, somebody, I guess, has to get into this. But whether it's all of the terrible sexual innuendo from Penguin, the terrible puns, the poetic dialogue that just comes off as trite instead of in any way profound, it's it's one of the worst Batman movies I've ever seen. Well, well, I mean, there's there's plenty of uh, competitors for that spot, though. Oh, I mean, there's there absolutely there's competitors for that spot. There's bad Batman movies out there, but I'm impressed on a technical and filmmaking level i think there's a lot this movie does right but as we've stated endlessly on this podcast if you get the script wrong the movie fails because if you can't make an intriguing story with good characters and an audience can engage in then what is there to, to, to grasp onto but you're right alex i guess out there some people do Still enjoy this movie for what it is. Enjoy these interpretations of these characters. But for me, the movie does a poor job of making me care. Right. Definitely. When I had watched this in the past, it didn't grab my attention much at all. So I just had to get through it. When I watched it last night, I was at least a little bit more engaged. Though it's just relentlessly dark and then relentlessly sad. And then it doesn't really get brought back together well by any means. So it really doesn't become a product that has much to offer. And no, I would not recommend this film to you if you have not seen it. Absolutely not. Now, here's the thing, right? If you want a so bad it's good movie, Batman Returns is hilarious. Like, Zack was laughing the entire time we were watching that, just being absolutely taken off guard. Now, by the end, he was, like, silent because he was just... It's one of those movies where it's exhausting. Mm. By the time you get to the end of it, his mind was just baffled trying to put together what was going on in it. And it was the same for me as well. I didn't necessarily... I don't necessarily call this so bad it's good, but it's... It's in the range where it could be, but 
It's not necessarily, in my opinion. I just think there's entertainment value to be taken from the choices it makes and a lot of its terrible dialogue. But I agree with you, Alex. There's certainly shorter movies out there that are less painful to watch <laughs> that you could choose for that category than Batman Returns. Yeah, that, that was another thing about these two Tim Burton Batman movies that are very... They were longer than I thought. They were both... I think they were both two hours and six minutes, which I had been thinking they were closer to an hour and a half for some reason. There is a lot in Batman Returns. In Batman 1989, there's not actually that much in it, but a lot of the scenes just take more time compared to other Batman movies where the stories are so packed full of scenes that we, you know, usually get like these right. two and a half or three hour run times for a lot of them now. And they have to keep things moving and moving and it still feels long, but that's because there's so much in it with um Batman especially. It actually just breathes for a lot of scenes. Now, Batman Returns, I feel like some of the scenes were still a little bit slower than I might have expected, but they do put significantly more into this story than in Batman. It's just all a big stew of what is happening. Yeah. A stew is a good way to describe this because it's like a stew that was just of bad ingredients just all mixed together, which is too much creative control on Burton's part. They should have dialed him back a bit because I think that's why. Like, Burton complains about the creative control they leveraged on him in the first movie. That's why I think the things that do work about Batman 89 are because the people that wanted to make it a Batman movie made it a Batman movie. And the things that work in the movie are there because of what Burton wasn't able to get full control over. And that isn't to say that, because here's the thing, right? With so many directors out there, be it Burton, be it M. Night Shyamalan, they're directors that have fantastic talents at certain aspects of production. And if they would just, just focus on those aspects of production and let other people handle the creative decisions and the writing and all the other parts, because, you know, film's a collaborative experience, I think that, that would make some fantastic movies. But no, they always have to write, and they always have to have so much creative control over it, and it leads to movies that are bad because they, they can't write, don't know what they're doing, but I, yeah. Like you said, there's some people that do like returns, so who knows? Maybe there's something, maybe it's for some people, there's, there's just something with these this interpretation of this world and these characters they get engaged in. But for me, Batman 89 had potential, but was just a little too flawed for me to, to, to fully appreciate. But returns is a mistake. It is... A movie that was rewritten too many times, had too many elements thrown in, just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's a good place to leave it, because we've been kind of reiterating our points for a while, and we're nearly at a two-hour recording, which is the longest we've ever yep. recorded for an episode of this podcast, which, of course, is probably going to be chopped down a bit as I make edits to it. But uh, next up, God help me, we're going to be talking about Batman Forever and Batman and Robin on our next episode of Overthinking Movies with Jim Carrey as the Riddler, Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face, and of course, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. How do these movies compare to Batman Returns? They're, they're obviously not up as great movies in their own right, but will this prove to be where the tides turn and Batman improves in this old era of the films? Catch us next time. We've got so much more to talk about. Oh, God. Yes, same, same bad time, same bad podcast. Wow, I did not expect this to be the longest episode ever of the podcast. 
I guess that's just what Batman Returns can do to a person. If you like Batman Returns and want to yell at me, you can send all hate mail and feedback in general to overthinkingmoviespodcast at gmail.com. And for more episodes of Overthinking Movies, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as anywhere else you get your podcasts on. You can also find us on goldhitswkva.com, star967.com, and wchx1055.com by clicking on the podcast tab at the top. Instead of watching either of these films, I would just recommend watching the episodes of the Batman animated series that cover these same villains because because they do a much better job. And I'm not saying the Tim Burton Batman movies are bad because they're inaccurate to the comics. Obviously, you can have a great movie that has nothing to do with its book. But for me, I have to compare when what these movies come up with is so different and also so, so inferior to their source material. Anyway, considering that Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are out of the gate, films that are not very well looked upon, I think it'll be more interesting to compare those two and see how their quality holds up in comparison to now how I see the Michael Keaton Batman films. Join us next time for Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones dancing and and also a movie that every single line of dialogue is a pun. There's not, there. I don't think there's a single line of dialogue in Batman and Robin that isn't a pun. So stay tuned for that. That's a wrap.